Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday night. Um... I really should put stuff to tomorrow. I'm tired, but I wanted to get it out of the way. Let's do the podcast bio for this week. Um, before I tell you who it is, I want to say that this is being sponsored by Nasi Fogel here in Baltimore, a friend of my son's, who uh, gave me a, this is in, in honor of his grandmother's yard site, 23 Cheshwin, which is one of these days. I think maybe it was the other day. And, uh, the bio he sent me is <laughs> is a podcast by itself. Listen to this. Her name was Chai Rochelbas Akiva Fogel and Nelea from the Nota Behuda. I think the Nota Behuda must have more children than Genghis Khan because I've never gone to any place that I, seriously, I don't run into somebody or at least one or two people say I'm from the Nota Behuda. How come I never run into anybody that says I'm from Habeshitz or for this and the other? Nota Behuda is all over the place. I've been by non-from people they all tell me in Nota Behuda. Anyway, it says... Uh, he's not sure when she was born, born in Romania. Here's the point of the story. This is the interesting part. This is for the movie. Um, she was engaged to my grandfather. This note was back in Romania. I assume when they say Romania, they mean the Hungary part. Before the war broke out, the grandfather knows, the, let's put it this way, they were engaged and the husband was able to leave and ended up in Bogota, Colombia. Can you imagine? You know, in the 30s, you got out wherever the heck you could. You ran away wherever you can. Better than uh, Hitler. And he couldn't get her out, even though she was stuck on the other side of the world and unsure if he would ever see her again. He waited for after a few years of trying to figure out how, how to get her out. He's able to get in touch with an American army general who was able to locate her. That sounds crazy. And get her out. There's no American army general could get somebody out in the middle of World War II. Maybe it was after the war. And go to Bogota. Um, but anyway, it's like the other day I mentioned somebody who, uh, who ran away, was able to get away to Cuba. These are the lucky ones. In Bogota, she had four kids and was one of the bastions of the from community there. How big do you imagine the from community was in Bogota, Colombia once upon a time? There was no mikvah. So you built one in their garage and they're opening up to visitors. There you go. That's the old school. Eventually, they had to send my father and his siblings to America to go to from school because there was only a non-from school. That's true. They used to have these Zionist or secular places. And they sent him instead to a Catholic school over there which they felt was better for his Yiddish guy going to the non-from school. Isn't that interesting? I've heard of that. And she passed away from the rheumatic fever in 1969. Uh, so anybody can make it through Bogota, Colombia, especially building Mikvah in the garage. My goodness. <laughs> I'm going to do something tonight ordinarily I wouldn't have thought of doing. But what the heck? I uh, My mind works associatively. And since the other day, I did this and back. And before that was the original Rebbe. I was, for whatever reason... So my mind naturally wandered to Eretz Yisrael, to Palestine in the 19th century, because that's when all these guys operated. And if we're talking about Palestine in the 19th century, so one of the, and we're talking about people at a yard site recently, um, and maybe you're not going to usually hear because it's associated with Zionism, so I figured I would do T. Hirsch Kalischer, because he's more or less the first of the Zionists, even though he wasn't a Zionist in the sense that we understand the term. 
Um, this is somebody who lived in East Germany, as you'll see in a second, who died in 1874, born in 1795. This is before any kind of movement started. Nevertheless, it's very interesting in a certain way. I would say it's kind of a brilliant failure, but that's not exactly true either. And so, let's see what we're talking about. Uh, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Kalasher is um, a type we don't usually talk about, which is um, Western Poland, the part annexed by Prussia. <clears throat> if you have any idea what I'm talking about, you have to like Google a map and look up um, the partition of Poland. There used to be, as you know from listening to me a million times, the old kingdom of Poland that once existed, and that's the Polish Eid. <laughs> However, Poland was chopped up and divided by the three neighbors, Prussia, Russia, Austria, in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And uh, the part where he lived is actually, the part was taken over very early by Prussia, Frederick the Great. Uh, and it remained part of Prussia until the First World War. So are these Yekis? The answer is yes and no. I mean... The Jews in that area of the world <clears throat> really Polish, and so were the Gaim. The Prussian government was out to destroy the Polishism so they would all be German-speaking and sort of Prussianize them. Not, not Russianize them, but Germanize them. Now, it's not killing, but you're trying to kill their culture. And the result is that in that part of the world, um, Poland didn't exist until after the First World War. So if you live in that part of the world... Um, you either were in the part that belonged to Russia or Austria or, or Prussia. The places we're talking about, which you can call East Prussia and the Grand Duchy of Posen, if that name means anything to you. You know, I mean, I know I have all kinds of different listeners. Uh, so those were Polish Jews who lived in the far western part of Poland, right near Germany, that was actually annexed by Germany. And next thing you know, the German government, there wasn't a Germany at that time, it was Prussia. But to make things more complicated, over the course of the 1800s, Prussia actually took over Germany, the German states, and founded the German Empire. So the German Empire was a certain type of Prussia. I hope I haven't confused you. Uh, from the Jewish perspective, used to be the good old days in the Kingdom of Poland. The Jews kept it themselves. <clears throat> they prospered however they did. They talked Yiddish. Their neighbors talked Polish. And each side said the hell with the other. But then, when the process that I just talked about took place, in the part that I'm talking about, the Prussian army came in, annexed the country to Prussia. They said, you guys are all now German, Prussian citizens, uh, or at least subjects. Uh, as far as the Jews are concerned, start speaking German, act German, don't act Polish. The Polacks, who lived there, were very angry. Uh, they were persecuted by the Prussians for 100 years. Um, it wasn't as bad as Russia, but it was bad. And they tried to stamp out the Polish language and schools and all that business. Now, in some areas it worked. In some areas, the Poles reacted violently and there was like a culture war going on for 100 years. Not many people know about this. It's actually very interesting. And it's very no to our story. Because our hero was born in that part of the world. And he lived all his life in that part of the world. Um, came from from family, 1795. And so when he grew up, he went to yeshiva. What's the big yeshiva 
in the Grand Duchy of Posen, of this part of Prussian Poland? The answer is Rabbi Kivager. That is who Rabbi Kivager was. He was the Rav at the time of the Prussian occupation. And he was, I wouldn't say a German, because he wasn't, but he was the rabbi of the Jewish community. At the time, it was being subjected to Prussianization. Um, and what that means is, little by little, all the German, all the Jews in that area become a certain type of yeki, which is um, they dress Western, get rid of the payas, you know, that sort of thing. But I would say it was still a little more traditional than in other parts of Germany. And for 100 years, all during the time of the Kaiser, um, there were many little communities down to the First World War in Eastern Germany where you still had holdouts from the old Yiddishkeit. It was uh, known. Now, there was also some reform, but the traditionalism was a little bit stronger there. And it's a, it's a very interesting story. This is where... Um, some of the fights between the from and not from broke out. And our hero grew up in that area. Now, if he's born in 1795, so just do the arithmetic, and you'll see that um, he's growing up during the Napoleonic Wars, where he lived in East Prussia, that area, was a battle zone in the Napoleonic Wars. I didn't expect you to know that, but you can look it up. The Battle of Vienna, Auerstadt, Friedland, was the other one, uh, Forget all the different things. There was a lot of fighting there. Uh, so it was the time of Andromusia. But in the end, Prussia and the Allies won. And this area was part of Prussia. Meanwhile, he was going to Yeshiva. Um, he learned of a story. He became, it was a Talmud Chacham, no question about it. I would even go so far as to say an old school Talmud Chacham. However, I would have to modify that by saying, but you're not living in Eastern Europe anymore. You are, but you're living in the Prussian part, so in a strange way, it's very westernized, even though it's not exactly western. And so here's a guy learning by Rabbi Kivager, Shas and Poskim, Shiurim Lomdis, and yet, and by the way, when he really was born, it was in Lissa, which is a uh, Lesno. These are all areas that I'm talking about, the Prussian part of Poland. And who was the rabbi in Lisa? The Nasivis. So here's somebody who the rabbi in this town. His little kid was in the Nasivis. And when he grows up a teenager, it's, it's Rabbi Kivager. That's what I'm trying to tell you. In spite of that, or in addition to that, he also learned German, because that was that part of the world. The government made you learn German, not just Yiddish. And he happened to be interested in philosophy. Now, he never went to school, never went to college. So he's going to be an autodidact, like a Moskillic style, except he's not a regular Moskill. But he's interested in um, Mendelssohn, Kant, Kant, the famous philosopher, lived not far from his house. Spinoza, Descartes, these are not usually the type of things you find a regular Shiba guy uh, learning. I don't know if that's true. Rabbi Kivager is not what you imagine. He was in Western Europe, so to speak. And the people learned by him was all different types. So you had the regular Shiba sorts, but you also had people from middle class families and things like that. And they were more braked. I think Rabbi Kivager is an ununderstood uh, figure but from the historical perspective. But let's put it this way. Our hero learned by him. Uh, I was close to him all his life. And uh, then he got married. And he married, I'd say, a rich girl. And when I say rich girl, not rich, but, you know, middle class, in Torn. 
which today is Torun, uh, which is like on the border, you might say, close to the to the to the border of um, of Prussia and uh, Poland, Russian Poland. Now, that's where he stayed for the rest of his life. Because when he got married, he went to learn by Schwer, who supported him. And when the Schwer died, when he was 29 years old, uh, he was elected the rabbi. It's not a big town, but it's an important town. And it was a major center of cultural clash, listen closely, between the Germans and the Polacks. Get it? The Germans, all during the 19th century, were trying to crush the Polish national culture, language, literature, and the Poles are fighting back, asserting to the best of their ability the vitality of the Polish language and culture and so forth. This is the land of culture war. Whenever you had that, the Jews are in a funny position. What do you do? It's like living in Northern Ireland, you know? Are you Jewish? Are you Catholics? Protestant? What are you for? Um, this is something that happens to Jews from time to time. We don't experience this in the United States of America, but there are countries where this happens. Now, um, I'll tell you the reason I'm emphasizing that. That means you're in the 1800s, and I'll say it again, he ends up staying in this town, being the Rav, for the rest of his life, 50 years. It's a long time, I just said. be 50 years of Rav in the town. Now, he didn't take a salary. That's why they kept him. <laughs> Old school, you know, his wife made the Parnassa a little store. He's that type. Money didn't mean much then. So what did mean much then? He's looking around, and it's in the 18... Now he's about 30 years old, so it's 1820s. Okay, so here we are, somebody living in that part of Europe, half Western, half Eastern. 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. 1800s. What's going on? Several megatrends are going on. Uh, one of them is the megatrend of nationalism. He's right in the teeth of it, because it's the German nationalism which is rising, Versus the Polish nationalism. Our poets are better than yours. Our country is better than yours. Our national culture is better than yours. And the other guys, no, it's not. Ours is better than yours. And so this can't help but cause people to ask themselves the question, where do I stand? A lot of Jews, in the course of this, 19th century, sided with one European culture over another. Not the Jewish culture. That's my point. Judaism... It came to be regarded as a religion, not a culture. National culture. Which is interesting. Do you feel that way today? It's not so much of what I'm saying. What is the, the identity of a Jew? Um, I'm not talking what your legal status is. I'm talking what the identity is. And the Jews in Germany wanted to be accepted in Prussia and get civil rights. All the German states were like that. And in the course of the 1800s, the German Jews twisted like a pretzel to say, listen, we really are German. The Goyim said, you're not German. Why should we give you civil rights? It's a country for Goyim. It's not a country for Christians. not a country for Jews. The Jews said, we've been here for a thousand years or more. <laughs> We're just as German as anybody else. The Goyim said, no, you're not. You talk Yiddish. It's not German. They said, all right, we'll switch. And they do. But you dress funny with the payas and the kapatas and all. We'll switch that also. And they do. You send your children to Jewish schools, haters and things, not to regular schools. We'll change or we'll switch or we'll send our children to schools. You understand what I'm saying? The Jews themselves bend over backwards, which from a certain point of view was an act of national uh, uh, treason. But the Jews are like this. We're only Jewish in regard to religion. Everything else we're German. 
I think many people are aware that before Hitler, the German Jews, many of them, not all, certainly not all, <laughs> felt themselves and tried to make themselves really, really German, uh, blew up in their face, but, you know, that's what they tried. Some people did it in America also. It's an interesting concept. Uh, so you, in the rise of nationalism, and that's destroying the Jewish center, sense of nationalism. See, because before this time, the 1700s and before that, the Jews were just not regarded as part of the local group, but as a separate little crazy group that lived in autonomous, coercive communities. They're ugly, they're clannish, they're stupid, they're this, that, and the other. Therefore, they keep to themselves. That was a good thing for the Jews to maintain their national identity, their group identity. We're not part of the guy, we're part of our own. They can make fun of us, we can make fun of them. We're part of our own. Now, in the 19th century, in the, in, in the course of integrating in the European society and trying to get civil rights, the Jews had to sort of like do Palgin and Dibor. They have to say, in some respects, we're Jewish, in some respects, we're German or French or whatever it is. And as time went on, it wasn't 50 50 either. And as time went on, it became to be like 90 10 and worse 90% German and 10% Jewish or less. So, or French or English or whatever you want. So he lived in a very unusual time. He was born just before this happened. And his education was very from Vagar, the Sebus, things like that. So he's super Jewish. And yet he lives in Prussia. The reason I'm mentioning this to you is for him, Zionism will be a third way out. Now, I should use the word Zionism, but I will because it'll make it easier for you guys to understand. Right? I want to assert my Jewish identity. Like that. Um, this was interesting. Now, um, here he's in this little town. Educated. Is a Tom Lechachem. He wasn't no good a lot door, but he knew Shas and Poskin pretty well. You know what I'm saying? This guy he took all the Bechinas in Yeshiva. He sat and learned. He didn't do nothing. He he wasn't a doctor, a lawyer, or things like that. He was a rub. He was a dying in a small community. That's all he did. So I want you to understand who we're dealing with. But on the other hand, the fact that he was into philosophy and other things shows he had a broader interest in addition to the Torah stuff. Uh, but not in a bifurcated way that this is half my Jewish side, this is half my Jewish side. It's all tzimished. Which is not a bad thing necessarily, but that's what it was. Now, part of it is, as I said before, the nationalism. The other part is, he's well aware that these trends are tearing Judaism apart. The reform movement was around at that time. There were a lot of fights going on. He was wise enough to see that the old-fashioned Judaism in the old way doesn't work for the younger generation. His own grandchildren became unfirm, some of them. He had a grandson who was a big reform uh, uh, community leader. His kids were from, but the grandchildren were not. That's very common in the 19th century. A lot of big gedolim that happened to A lot. Big names. You don't understand the wave of feeling that was going at that time that people wanted to Europeanize. Especially you live in that part of the world. That's just what it was. Uh, and so what's the way out? What is the way out? What's the future for the Jews? If things go in the way they are, the Jews will disappear. And he was 100% right about that. As we all know, there's a silent Holocaust in addition to the regular Holocaust. The Jews in America are uh, disintegrating, as we know. 
The Jews in Chutzlarts are disintegrating, with the exception of Frum. However, how long that'll last. But whoever's not interested in being in the Frum is disintegrating. It's a question. Another generation, another generation, it's all gone. Now, you know, somebody may say, yes, it is what it is, and those who lose will lose in the heck with them. But if you're him, and living 200 years ago, you say, well, it's me. What's going to be? Um, what's the way out? What's the way out? I think that this led him to think in broad terms. And he starts saying like this. You know, we have to have a Jewish nationalism. From, of course. From. How are you going to have a Jewish nationalism? The Jews can't have a country in Europe. Well, that's true. What about Israel? What about Israel? Israel is ruled by the Turks. There's hardly anybody there. Well, let's start thinking about that. And he became... Now I'm going to say something that sounds funny, but I'm doing it to make it easier for most of you to understand. He became like an Eimbamelin Smecha guy. You know, said, I think many of you are familiar with the Eimbamelin Smecha. In which you look through all of Shas, the Poskim, and the Rishon and the Chorin, and you look for the Maimur Chazals, or the famous things of those, to construct a philosophy of, of a certain type of Zionism. Now again, I shouldn't use the word Zionism because it didn't exist, but the idea of return to Eretz Yisrael most Jews, um, if not all, said like this: But God's going to do that. How it happens? One day I'll wake up and we'll say, "Guess what? Somebody came down from a cloud of heaven. Somebody came riding on a horse, and the whole world turned upside down. It was a nice nigla. It'll be the biggest nice nigla you ever seen in your life." The guy will all be shocked. But we will say, let's see, we believed all the way through, and now our belief is rewarded. It's taken a couple thousand years, but now it's happening. It's all Derek Nace. You don't have to do nothing. You stay in Germany. You stay in Russia. You stay in Poland, in Italy, wherever. And when Mashiach comes, then you get in a boat and go to Israel. It'll all be done for you. It's a package deal. That's one way of looking at it. Okay? And there are sources for that. However, when you come to Jewish literature, rabbinic literature, you can find a source for anything. Because we don't have a theology. We all have opinions out there scattered across a lot of different opinions. What's in Shas? What's in Medrash? Mishonim, Achron. You know, not everybody's on the same page. A lot of different ways of trying to interpret because, all, after all, as Rambam puts it, you're guessing about what the future is going to look like. There was no question. That until then, everybody saw it in the terms I just said before. And many people do today. To some degree, it's the Yetzir Tov. To some degree, it's the Yetzir Har. It's the Yetzir Tov because you have a Muna Tamima. It's the Yetzir Har because you're not doing a doggone thing. You're saying God will do all the work. This is what stirred in his mind. And some other people, but I'm talking about him. And so he starts looking throughout all the, you know, Sfarim. Uh, and... As best as I can tell, he got fixated. And this is interesting on um Baishani. Baishani. Not Baishan. What happened by Baishani? The Yushalan was destroyed by Babel. There was a seventy year exile. And then Korish Melech Paras allowed the Jews back in. We know the story. It wasn't it was a little, you know, stops and starts. Well, that's what happened. They came, they laid the foundation, they started the Corbonus, 
Then the king changed his mind. But 18 years later, they finished the base of Megish and so forth and so on. So in other words, whereas the first time around, Eretz role was conquered by Kibush, the second time it was a peaceful. The Rambam makes a big deal out of this in uh, Shemitah. I'll talk about this some other time. Right? What they call a, a Kedusha Rishonah, Kedusha Shnia, you know, like that. Now, the point is as follows. There was an emperor named Cyrus, and peacefully he let the Jews go back. So you don't have to worry about the Agadaton, the Gemara, that says the Jews took three Shavuos. You're not going to be murdered against the Umas Olam. The Umas Olam let him back. That's what happened at that time. He convinced himself this is going to be next time also. Right? Next time also. I'm not saying he was wrong, by the way. Things sort of turned out. Sort of turned out that way with the Balfour Declaration. But this is his model. And so here you are. He's 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old. No, he's 1820s, 30s, 40s, and so forth. Um, these ideas are maturing in his mind. I would say by the time he hits 35 or so, he's got fixed on that. And so the key is to find a Cyrus out there or some peaceful way that the guy will agree to set up a Jewish, allow the Jews to return and set up a Jewish state in Israel. He was such a romantic, I don't know where he was asleep at the switch. He thought he could even get give the higher bias back. I mean, he obviously didn't understand the Islam. You know, um, this we imagine. And he writes all this in a famous letter to Rothschild. There was a from Rothschild at that time in um, Frankfurt. One of them was from. You can see his his uh, kever maybe was destroyed with a big talus on the kever, you know, in, in marble. And uh, this Usher Ancho Rothschild, who was childless, um, and he was from. And so he wrote to him a rabbinical letter. It's very interesting. I'm, I bet it's online somewhere. And he says, Rothschild now in the 1830s, you are higher than any Jewish family has ever been before, which is true. The peak that was reached by the Rothschilds in the first half of the 19th century was extraordinary. All the kings and the queens needed them for a while. This is in the post-Napoleonic era. Just take it from me. If you're interested in all the details, get that book by Niall Ferguson. It gives you all the financial junk. Those two volumes. How the Rothschilds operated the money market at that time in Europe. Because the countries were always going bankrupt and they had to borrow from them. Including the Pope. Right? Now, I don't want to get too bogged down to that. To our hero, or to Hirsch Kalashard, he writes to Rothschild, and he says, listen, your unbelievable Hatzlocha has got to be for something. Uh, and, and you're from. So, I can write to you and I expect you'll understand what I'm talking about. God put you over here, the high position, for something. Use it for Claudius throat. And basically, um, look at the international politics of the time. Here I'm building what I told you, I think last week, about this and that, which was that Palestine in the 1800s was ruled by the Turkish Empire, except when it wasn't. If you remember, uh, the governor of Egypt, Mehmet Ali, declared independence of the Ottoman Empire, formed a big army under his son, Ibrahim Pasha, and invaded Syria and Palestine and conquered it. 
And and Ibrahim Pasha could have knocked out the Pers the Turkish Empire and taken over the whole business because he was that good of a general. The European countries intervened and prevented that uh, to save the Ottoman Empire. But for 10 years, Palestine was ruled by the Egyptians under Ibrahim Pasha. He was a much more capable ruler than the Turks had been. There was much more law and order and things like that. Here's our hero living far away in Germany, in eastern Germany. And he says, um, and this is a very rabbinical way of looking at things. These events must have a messianic significance. Uh, I say messianic in the sense of Cyrus. Right? Not that the Mashiach will come down flying on a horse or bomb the Goyim, but they'll get with the consent of the Goyim to give uh, Palestine to the Jews. He says it used to be like this. Eretz Yisrael for centuries was ruled by the Roman Empire. They were too big to take on. Then it was ruled, this is what he says, by the Turkish Empire. These empires were too big to take on. Now it's only by Egypt. They said now it's 1836, only ruled by Egypt. Egypt is a country, it's not an empire. Um, why don't you Rothschild, who have endless billions at that time, tell the Egyptian Pasha, he's just a Pasha, let's switch countries. Let's do a real estate deal. I'll buy Israel. And I'll give you enough money to buy two countries in this place, right? Like they say in America, it's an offer you can't refuse. Right? See a guy goes to, to the house and he just throws money at you. You can't turn it down. Comes a certain point, he offers you so much money, you can't turn it down. Do that with him. And what's really funny is, he said like this. You offer him money, you buy Eretz Yisrael, and you know something? It's a good real estate deal for you too, Rothschild. You're not going to lose out. You're a smart guy. Think about this. Suppose you buy Israel. And then other Jews will move there. All the real estate will shoot to the sky. You'll make a fortune. <laughs> and if you can't buy Israel, at least buy Yushalayim. If you can't buy Yushalayim, at least buy the higher bias. Because once you have a higher bias, then we can start offering Karbonus in. That's what they did in the time of Ezra Nehemiah. They got permission from Cyrus. Go look it up. They came to Yushalayim. Before anything else, they started offering Carbonus. And Carbonus have a mystical power. And that did Reich Nichoch or something like that. Actually, not Reich Nichoch, but they did good things. And resulted in a happy ending for the Jews at that time. Same thing should happen now. And so he got fixated that they should buy Israel and start the Carbonus up again. Ah, you'll tell me there are 100 impediments to offering Carbonus again. He said they're not. At least some Carbonus like Carmen Pesach, whatever. See, he's the famous guy you've heard of once in a while in what I call, you know, the, the public shore, the people who wanted to be Mechadish to Carbonus. This is the guy that started it. Right? This is the guy that started it. In a very firm way, now if we start the Carbonus again, Hashem will be in a good mood and it will help recapture for us everything's role and bring Kibbutz Goliath. Now, is this the final Mashiach time? No. It's a start. We have to do the first steps, and then eventually Hashem will fill in the rest. If we don't do the first part, there's nothing for Hashem to fill in. That's the way he conceives it. Uh, now, everything he said, we can think of him, but so can he. That's why I said, uh, this is the problem I always have with Zionist polemics, or anti-Zionist polemics, whether it's Rav Cook 
or satmar or anything like that. Everybody can construct a shita. You really can. From different sources, scattered all throughout the Chazals and the Rishon Machron. You honestly can. I don't mean that to be cynical. That's the nature of our religion, that we've always sought precision on the nominism, on the rituals and the laws. But we never um, blocked multi-valence, um, poly, all, whole set of different sets of ideas in the Agatha department. Right? So when you... I remember he find He tells Rothschild, there's Radak and Tehillim. The, the next ghoul will be like Cyrus. You know, the nations of the world let him back in. Okay, you can find contrary things. That's who he was. Uh, now, Rothschild didn't do nothing. Don't worry. And within four years, the Turkish Empire retook uh, Eretz Yisrael. Uh, but he didn't give up. He wrote to Montefiore, and he had a lot to do with Montefiore. I think he wrote to Nissenbeck. They wrote to this guy and that guy. In other words, it's a little rub in a small shtetl, as we would say, on the Prussian-Polish border, who's writing in a rabbinic Hebrew, but his ideas are interesting. And he captured the imagination of certain individual Jews, men of daring and vision. They weren't necessarily from, or let me rephrase that, they weren't from in the Haredi way. If you, if you recall position of the people in charge of the old Yishuv prior to this were the Lehrin brothers in Amsterdam. I did them once. And their opinion was nobody's allowed to move there to Israel unless it's for learning. If you go there to make a Parnosa, it's like a Chil Hashem. That's what they were. We will raise the money to support you and permanent Kolo. Anything other than that is also. I guess that must be the idea if you're in Paltra and Shalmelech you know, you should just do Torah mitzvahs all the time. But our hero is the other way, like many others. Like many others, who said, no, of course, there's plenty of room for Torah and Avodah. When somebody wants to move there to learn, that's great. There should also be Jews to move there and make cities. And Moshevot, colonies, as they call them that time. I'll use the word kibbutzim, even though that's from the 20th century. You know, things like that. The Jewish settlements. Kimo, Kimo, little by little, it'll build up its own. So notice, it's not the Mashiach will come, this is a messianic process, which you start, and then it'll come here. So basically, they didn't call it the Aschalta de Gula, but that's what they call it nowadays. He was like the first person that I know of who uh, proposed these ideas. He wrote about it later into others. Uh, he got into a big correspondence with Rabbi Kivega and Echsam Sofer and the others, arguing over whether or not you can do the Karbanas nowadays. He meant the Karbanas uh, nowadays. There's a lot of raid on this. I personally, I said before, always like uh, Sheila O'Rafael's article because it was very short and very uh, Thomas Dick on um, on what he called on this issue. I have the book in front of me. Uh, you just look up she- Sheila O'Rafael. Is a rabbi in, in, in Israel. Carbonus was around there. It's like eight or nine pages. It was very good. Uh, you know, the Gedolim basically said this. You can't do it. Um, can you imagine? By the way, the whole thing was ridiculous. When I say ridiculous, ain't no way the Muslims going to let you start offering Carbonus in the higher bias. <laughs> right? But they were talking about it in principle. And this one said you can't do it because you don't have a tzitz. The other one said we don't have big dikuna. And 
Yeah, and he's dinged, you know, he goes back and forth. Even the Rothschild, he says, Oh, the Lumbus, I don't know how you expect the Rothschild to understand this. You'll tell me we don't have carb real koanum nowadays. You'll tell me this problem, that problem. You know, he tried to explain it in his way. There's an enthusiast. Now, as is the case with enthusiasts, they're a little bit weird. Maybe more than a little. But somehow these ideas get out there in the public. Right? And I would say he started a ball rolling. No question about it. It appealed, not to most, because most thought he's an eccentric and a weirdo. Nice guy, eccentric and a weirdo. But he appealed to the unusual types. Montefiore, some of the Rothschilds, later on Baron Rothschild, who's the yard says also this month, um, some non-from people at that time, Moses Hess, who together with Karl Marx started the communism and then switched, uh, Frenchies, who were quite assimilationists, but he knew how to touch their button, the part of them that was not assimilationist. And so some of these French Jews started the Alliance of Israeli Universal, the famous organization. And he got down, uh, he was not from people, to uh, start the first Jewish settlement, Mikveh Israel, uh, in Palestine, what, in the 1860s or something like that. Very, very early one. These are the first steps. Uh, these are guys who thought that it'll take 100 years, but we got to start now. You know, that was the Svar. They were sort of right, you know, roughly. It took about 100 years, roughly. Nobody could foretell what was going to happen later in the 1800s that would speed it up. But the, at the time, these people were talking about, you know, this is what they were thinking. So basically, this is a person who gave the impetus what later became the Chov of Eitzion. Not the Zionist movement, because that was Theodor Herzl in the 1890s, and that was a distinctly secular thing. The Chov Eitzion was half and half. Half secular, half atheist. It was half and half. Tvier's Kalisher was a firm thing. The people he was mainly in contact with were either fellow rabbonin, Orthodox rabbis, or non-from people who had what we call pintaliyid and dreamed of a Jewish state in some distant future and were willing to take a few steps in the direction now. There were some Jews, like Montefiore, who probably... You know, thought that, I mean, that, you know, the Jewish state's not so far away. It's not tomorrow, but it's possible. But they were very practical. And they said, no politics. Don't talk about a Jewish state. Let's talk about building, bringing Jews in the land. Because at the end of the day, the bottom line, the sine qua non, for talking about anything Jewish state, of any kind, from or not from, is you have to have a large population. There were very few Jews. You get it? You have to have a large population. This is the one problem they were not able to overcome. They couldn't get a mass immigration to Palestine. They could only get Yechidi Skula. Here a few, here a few. And even though every movement is interesting, and every group that's settled there is interesting, like I mentioned last week with this and Beck, there's a Yachid here and a Yachid there or a couple of Yechidim here and a couple of Yechidim there. You couldn't create something out of that. Except, you'll counter-argue, that's what the three-year scholars say, listen, you got to start somewhere. And the small ones will attract more and more, eventually, little by little, they'll build up. I get it. You know what I'm saying? I get it. But that's why, um, 
many people were skeptical. And frankly, that's what led Herzl at the end of the 19th century to see the heck we're dead. We got to get a state and then artificially bring in a million people. Uh, consider well, when I spoke about the vision of Rebbe and all that, no Hasidic Rebbe of stature made Aliyah in the 19th century territory Israel. Imagine if one of the big Rebbe's, I mean the biggies, would have said, I'm moving to Yerushalayim. Which they had money they could have done. Right? They could have done. 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. They could build a mansion over there. And I'm not being cynical, I'm being serious. So imagine if some big Rebbe would move and live a cover day, leave a shalim in the 1800s. And then he would say like this, I'm telling all my guys, Mila Shemila, whoever's able to, should endeavor and try to move to Eretz Yisrael. You'd have a, a movement of tens of thousands of Chassidim moving to Eretz Yisrael. By that alone, they would have had a majority at that time. But it was off the radar. Nobody saw it in those terms. Nobody saw it in these exact terms. So I'm trying to share with you an idea, a, a world of ideas that were that he's trying to put out there. And, you know, he found a few friends here, a few friends there, and he wrote articles in all the newspapers. I don't want to bore all the details, and especially from newspapers. The from newspaper at that time was Halavon. You know, he, you know, he he was a player, as we say today. Uh, and he was, you know, he possibly, he has his shouts and shivers. I've always thought they're kind of weird. But, you know, it was a, a bigger tamachach than me. I remember, I told him about he said, it's like a mitzvah to be to, to Mal Goyen, things like that. A little strange. But, you know, anything he said, he's backing up with rise from Shas and Poskim. I just want to be clear about that. He wasn't a reform member or anything like that at all. The opposite. His big vision was, and in this he was prophetic, there's no future for the Jews in Europe. Get it? There's no future. Where's it going? A generation or two, everybody be not from. It's the 19th century. How many Samson Raphael Herders out there? It's a tiny group. It's very small. It's not something for Hamonam. You get what I'm saying? Maybe you don't understand this. If I tell you today, what is the future for American Jews or the Jews in Gullahs to survive as Jews and not disappear through intermarriage? You'll say it like this. They should become from. That's not an option, really, for most. You'll have a few Balchubas. It's not something that most American Jews are going to do. Get over it. You understand? I wish it was. It's not going to happen. Talk to any Lubavitcher, they'll tell you. The ones around the field. It's not going to happen. You get what you get, and you save who you save. You know, a few here, a few there, like Noah's Ark. But don't fool yourself to thinking that something's going to happen. All of a sudden, these millions of American Jews are going to say, now I want to be from. So what's the plan? So you say, well, I don't know. It's not my problem. If you have that attitude, okay, you have that attitude. Now, if you live in Europe, for example, you have the same thing. What's the plan? He lived in Germany. He wasn't crazy. He saw the whole young jar was going down the tubes. And it's going to spread to every other country. And Europe, Eastern Europe is not better. It's only a, a generation or two away. You know what I mean? Notice the assimilation will hit Germany now. It'll hit Eastern Europe 20, 30, 40 years later. That's all, 50 years later. What is the plan? Just to keep up the old Yiddish kite the way we did until now? It doesn't work. That worked when we were in autonomous, coercive communities, allowed our own separate corporate existence. Now, in the modern European system, the fact of the matter is the European nations demand that the Jews surrender their identity and redefine themselves solely as a religion. Once you tell your kids 
the Eureka identity is that of the uh, nation in which you live. Eureka identity is French, Polish, German, Czech, whatever. You don't realize they've ripped out the heart of their Yiddishkeit. This is how he saw it. So what is the plan? The only plan he saw is he set up a Jewish state of some kind and the Jews all moved to Israel. So this is the kind of Zionism which says, if you're going to be not from, that's exactly why you have to move to Israel. <laughs> you know Because when you're in Israel, you marry somebody Jewish. Yeah? You're not from now. Your children, your grandchildren, somebody along the line will become from. Yeah? They'll meet a breast lover, they'll meet a lababajah, they'll meet a this, that, the other. You know, a generation later, or later, later. But during Israel, they'll stay from because they'll be with other Jews. You know what I'm saying? This is how he thought. And he wasn't wrong. Right? Now, we'll never know because Hitler went in and killed everybody. But I think it's pretty clear the great majority of Jews in Europe were not going to have a religious conversion and become from. Right? So what was the plan? This was the Zionism, if I can use that term, before the Zionism existed. This was the, the kind of movement which says, it's Israel or bust. If we don't have to our own state, where all the Jews move and live together, then it'll just disintegrate from the intermarriage. This is what's going to happen. Um, smart people saw this. And, uh, let's put it this way, dreamers saw this. You want to know who he appealed to? I know how the heck I did it. Uh, Disraeli, who was a Christian. Disraeli was the Prime Minister of England and high official before that. Disraeli was born Jewish. His father had an argument. This is a true story. With the uh, board of directors at the Spanish-Portuguese show in London, um, they insisted this, he insisted that. They said, we'll give you a fine. He said, to hell with you. I'm converting all my children. Mom says, to hell with you. He went and took all of his kids and converted them. The Christian. That's how Benjamin Israel became a guy. When he was bar mitzvah, 13 years old. So he still had residual Jewish stuff in there. Secretly, you know, in his way, he was looking. You heard about Kalisher and other ideas like that. If you read his novels, he, he talks in these terms. The Jews want to rebuild get their country back. And he was plotting, it never happened, um, to see if there's some way you could bring this idea to fruition in his time. That would have been a Jewish state in Israel, though, in the 1870s, let's say. Uh, it's a complicated subject I just raised, and I would have to defend it, but you can. So, all I'm saying is, smart people who ask themselves existential questions about the future of Jewish people Pretty much, you know, we're going to end up saying you better get some kind of Jewish country in Israel because the alternative is not going to be good. The alternative is we'll lose 90%, if not more, to so the 10% that survival will be from, if that, if that. Now, if you're the type of person to say like this, so be it. So now you don't care. Such an attitude rose among the Orthodox Jews, especially in the West and Hungary and Germany, because of necessity. We can't turn them around. We can't change them. And so they'll just go down the tubes. I would say many from Jews in America think that way also nowadays. You read the Pew Report. You see these other things. They say, listen, it is what it is. I can't stop it. It's an avalanche. It's rushing to destruction. I know my neighbors, my cousins, my non-from relatives, this, that, and the other. Give it another generation or two. They'll all be going. It's unstoppable. So like Noah's Ark, you see, Aeneas Nafshi, it's salty. What can I do? It's a shame.
of people with the bigger Achrayas said, we got to try to find the Noah's Ark. we got to try to find the Noah's Ark. Eretz Yisrael will be the Noah's Ark. Okay? So I'm just trying to show you that it wasn't just a, simply a dreamer or romantic idea or something like that. It was an idea that came out of a consideration of the impossibility of Jewish survival in the modern European Gauls, post-modernity, after the Jews have lost their autonomous communities, after the Jews are now pushed into, pushed and pulled into secular education, which involves, especially in those days, strong identity with the national group in which you find yourself, the vitiation of the Jewish self-identity, the feeling that there's something wrong if I say my primary and sole identity is that of Jewish. I may be a citizen of England, I may be a citizen of France, but I am primarily Jewish. You People were afraid to say that in Europe. The more assimilated the word, the more afraid you say that. Because then you'll say this, the Germans will call you a traitor, the French will call you a traitor, the Italians will say you're a stranger. I don't want to lose that. And so they were willing to sacrifice their identity in order to get the civil rights and equality. But what do you have left? You're so emasculated in terms of your identity, you have nothing left. Who was that famous Irishman who was drunk and he said, I am prepared to sacrifice half the Constitution and, if necessary, both halves of the Constitution in order to preserve the remainder. You see? No, you know, they say, we're doing this to preserve our Jewish identity. This, uh, you end up with no Jewish identity. So these are the considerations that move people in this direction in the time of life of scholarship. Now, he also was real from... And so he saw, you know, he, he, it's Iqvitz and Mashiach, but that's how he interpreted events. When I told you he was impressed with the invasion in Egypt that he wrote to Rothschild about, I mean, the Egyptian invasion of Palestine, Ibrahim Pasha, that's nothing other than, you know, many Chazal say, when you see a world war going on, Tzapi Mashiach. You know where that goes back to? Kedar Omar and the word of four and the five kings. That was a world war at that time. And by the time it was over, Avram came out on top. And so you say, what's the result of a world war? There's some big cataclysm. It's there for Claudius Yisrael. If you want to use modern terminology, you had World War One, and you had the Balfour Declaration. You had World War Two, and you had the State of Israel. Ah, it's a terrible price. I get that. You know, I'm not God, so I can't figure it all out. But I'm telling you, the, the mentality that, that, that pushes all this. So, uh, the Sefer Drishasim, that's where he wrote all these letters. And he published it, Drishat Sion, which of course is based on what he wrote to Rothschild, which is from a Gemara. It says, Sion, he Dorish in law. Many know this from the Gemara. We call it Sion by Drisha. Sion requires Drisha. Drisha doesn't mean interpretation, Drisha means seeking. So, in other words, that's the idea. You can't just sit there and wait for the Mashiach to come tomorrow when you're on. You have to do something also. Sion by Drisha. You have to tutapis. Now, nobody envisioned, because none of us know the future how the state of Israel come to be, and how, in the 70 years since 1948, the state of Israel is moving in a direction that Ben-Gurion never, never imagined. Okay? I think it's pretty clear, it seems anyway, that it's moving in, in, in a, a firm direction. You don't know, because there's also kicking and screaming on the anti-firm side. But certainly it didn't turn out to be a secular state which is out to uh, turn everybody into a guy. If that was their agenda, they failed. <laughs> okay? 
Israel today is uh, actually the, if you think about it, is a resource that, that that helps the American Jews and the other Jews stay firm because the kids go there for yeshiva. And that's where they get the shot in the arm. So, you know, nobody knows what the future is like. But uh, Tiers Kasha was one of those guys who said, but, but you have to work on trying to put together the future. You can't simply sit there with folded arms. The counter-argument against him was, how do you know your, your interpretation is right? There were big people, big Rabbana who opposed him. They said, you, this is how you put together. You meant, but your t- program may be all wrong. And for every Rishon or, or Chazal that you put this way, we can do another one. And if, you, if you're pushing the wrong program, it's going to be counterproductive. As we all know, this is a problem Hashkafah-wise never solved. Because once I tell you that anything you say, I can bring a counter-argument. Anything I say, you can bring a counter-argument. So it's existential, it'll never go away. You know what I'm saying? The Sat will never change, and the, the rough cook will never change. You know, that's how it goes. That's how it goes. Most of the people, they're from world like in the middle. They don't know where, they're not sure which way to go. So we live in, in strange times. There are people who step forward and speak very resolutely, give a clear, very clear shito. Okay, that doesn't mean they know what they're talking about, <laughs> right? How's the expression go? Uh, Never in doubt, often wrong. You know, you know. So, this is um, at least a strongly Jewish response to the crisis of the 19th century. As an interpretation that he offered of international events, uh, which is a very Jewish one, because we're saying all the international events are for Claudius Rome. Uh, the rise of nationalism, uh, the increased uh, technological revolutions, they make it much easier to get to Israel now. He would say the railroad, the steam engine, all that business, the steamships, um, the modern medicine, which at least gives us a shot to conquer the diseases which used to ravage Palestine. I think many people know that. You know, he was, a, he was an unusual guy. That's why he's a sickle weirdo. But he, not in a bad way. Um, and his ideas took off, because later on, when the Zionist movement started, even the Herzl Zionist movement started, there were a lot of people that didn't agree with Satmar, and there were a lot of people that didn't agree with the Agoda. That's how it goes. They didn't see it that way. Um, There's a lot of anger back and forth. They didn't see it that way. They said, we like his ideas better. So here's Kalisher. And therefore, he's like the, uh, what should I say, the ideational father of the religious Zionism. He lived before that. But they built on his ideas. Okay? They built on his ideas. So the whole Kippah through God thing, if you take it back to its origins, goes back to him. I think that's how they usually say it. Which is very interesting. Because, you know, um, the firm world is still engaged in these arguments. I think less so. But, you know, sometimes I'm surprised. I see more than I would imagine. Uh the arguments, as I said before, are existential. No, they're not going to go away. And uh, it creates an environment, now with this I can close, the formal world is always going to be characterized by a certain tension that will not go away. And you're not going to achieve a consensus on this, uh, which is just very interesting. Um, and, of course, the state of Israel now has its own path, you know what I mean, its own crises, uh, internal and external. Uh, 
if Collisher was alive today, he'd be one of these people pushing to go up in the higher bias. You know, that type. I mean, he wouldn't do Carbonis up there. Uh, or at least in some part. And uh, you certainly have a lot of those running around. So it's just very interesting that, that the month of Cheshman has the yard sale with a lot of these different types that have to do with Palestine in the 19th century. Uh, there's a lot more in him, but I don't want to go in longer. So uh, if you're interested, you can pursue it. I think the book might be in English. I'm not sure. The most of Cook could publish it from time to time. They have a good edition now, if this is something you're interested in. But I'll tell you again, it's very much like the, in my opinion, it's like the Ema Bonin Smecha. So if you're familiar with that, you know, it's uh, then, you've, then you'll be pretty much familiar with the Drishat CO, except there's a hundred years that separates them. Uh, so enough with that. With that, I wish you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.